I think we're going to continue to see political and social upheaval in the Arab world over the coming decade or two. We can expect to see daytime highs of greater than 50 degrees C. That's 122 degrees Fahrenheit. The next 15 to 20 years will be really important for averting continued and possibly even heightened political instability in the Levant and elsewhere in the Middle East. Israel has been, in a way, not just a part of a conflict with the Palestinians, but in some ways part of American politics and part of the dispute in American politics and part of the divide in American politics. Hi, my name is Nathan Sachs, and I'm the director of the Center for Middle East Policy at the Brookings Institution. Individually, I focus especially on Israeli foreign policy, its domestic origins, and on U.S.-Israeli relations. Together with several of our colleagues, Kevin Huggard and I try to take a long view, a couple of decades ahead, to try and think about what the Middle East might look like, given what we know today. This is, of course, very speculative. We have to approach this with a lot of humility. There's much more that we don't know about the next two decades than we do know. But policymaking must take into account the possible scenarios for the future. It has to keep in mind uncertainties associated, but it must project. It has to think of where things are going to be in order to devise prudent and adaptable policy today. We look in particular at how these developments might affect the security environment surrounding Israel, what the trends today suggest about Israel's environment in the future, and what policy adjustment that suggests today. On this special episode of the Brookings Cafeteria podcast, you will hear from me and four additional experts who will discuss findings and recommendations from their field of speciality. The full report can be found on the Brookings website, brookings.edu. You can follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter at Policy Podcasts to get information about and links to all our shows, including Dollar and Cents, the Brookings Trade Podcast, The Current, and our Events Podcast. And now, a brief look two decades ahead at Israel's outlook in the Middle East. We look at three broad categories of trends. First are very broad trends, transnational and even global issues. Climate change is already affecting the Middle East, which is, of course, an arid region to begin with. And climate change will continue and likely accelerate in the years to come. This could have dramatic effects on regime stability in the region and on refugee flows within the Middle East and out of it toward Europe and elsewhere. I'm Samantha Gross. I'm Director and Fellow in the Energy Security and Climate Initiative at Brookings. I think the most immediate impacts that we'll see in the Middle East are the actual impacts of the climate itself changing. We're seeing those right now already. Even where we're at right now, certain areas in the Gulf states are almost unbearable in the summertime, combining the heat and the humidity. And you're going to see stronger storms, stronger droughts. Those are already happening in the region. And so that's not something to anticipate in the future. It's here already. We're seeing that right now in the Middle East. We're seeing flooding in coastal cities, both sea level rise and from strong storms. We're seeing the Dead Sea drying up, both due to evaporation 
and because folks are drawing more water from the Jordan River, which flows into the Dead Sea, we can expect to see extreme heat and drought in the region. The region has been in a nearly continuous drought since the turn of the century. And as things go forward, we can expect to see daytime highs of greater than 50 degrees C. That's 122 degrees Fahrenheit for those of us who think that way. And in the coastal cities where it's very muggy, places like Doha, Jeddah, those temperatures along with humidity are just nearly unbearable. And then you think about air conditioning loads that just could make the climate worse because you need so much air conditioning to survive in that sort of climate. So the actual effects of the changing climate could be a huge problem in parts of the Middle East. Further, she notes that an eventual global transition away from fossil fuels will challenge the economic foundations of many countries in the region. Fossil fuels really run the governments in these fossil fuel dependent countries. More than half of employed GCC citizens work in the public sector, up to as many as 84% in Qatar. So all of this is funded by fossil fuels. So as the world moves away from fossil fuels, this could be a tremendous blow to these economies. For those economies that depend on oil and gas, they need a huge change in their economic structure away from a rentier economy where the economy really exists to distribute oil rents to the people. So something that's more like a different relationship between people and government, where the government supports private enterprise. This combination of climate and economic stressors could create grave challenges for regional stability. And so I worry about climate change and the world's reaction to climate change fomenting instability in some countries, particularly some that have been stable up to now, but may become less stable as their main source of revenue goes away. Tamara Kaufman-Wittes watched the 2011 Arab uprisings from the State Department while leading the Middle East Partnership Initiative. She notes that the governance issues that fueled those uprisings remain unresolved. Hi, I'm Tamara Kaufman-Wittes. I'm a senior fellow in the Center for Middle East Policy at the Brookings Institution. I think we're going to continue to see political and social upheaval in the Arab world over the coming decade or two. And that's because the drivers that led to the uprisings in 2011 haven't really been resolved. They were years in development, decades in some cases, and the governments of the region haven't yet figured out, for the most part, how to respond to them effectively. So if you're talking about the bubble of young Arabs who are relatively healthy and well-educated, but have aspirations for far more than their economies and societies can give them, the technological changes that have given people access to more information so that they can organize more effectively, but also so that they're more aware of how their society is doing relative to others. And that increases a sense of grievance. The concerns about corruption, the concerns about government effectiveness, the failure of healthcare systems and education systems, and the fact that governments seem just not to be very responsive 
to the needs of citizens, all of those trends are continuing. And so while I don't think we're necessarily going to see mass popular mobilizations in a lot of countries, I do think we will continue to see dissent bubble up. And we will, I think, see further governments face severe domestic challenges if they can't find a way to be more responsive to their people. So as Tamara discussed, large youth populations and limited economic and political opportunities played a central role in the 2011 Arab uprisings, with young people taking to the streets in massive numbers across the Middle East and North Africa. Kevin Huggard, Senior Research Assistant at the Center for Middle East Policy at Brookings, provides greater context for the region's demographic picture. And Tamara Wittes notes the risk this demographic future poses. Today, the peak of that youth bulge has passed somewhat in much of the region. And with the civil unrest and conflicts of the past decade, somewhat less attention is also given to the region's demographic picture than was the case in the years leading up to and immediately following 2011. That said, the Middle East and North Africa remains a relatively young region with a median age of 27 according to a 2019 UN estimate. Further, regional economies still do not provide enough jobs for their society's large youth populations. According to Nader Kabani, the youth unemployment rate in the Middle East and North Africa has been the highest of any region for the last 25 years and remains so, reaching 30% in 2017. The youth bulge in the region has for a long time been seen as an opportunity but also as a risk if it's not handled well. Young people can be a source of growth and dynamism if they can be well-educated and brought into the labor force. They can contribute a lot to economic growth and to social stability. But unless economic growth is sufficient to create new jobs for young people, especially given the social structure in a lot of Arab countries, they get stuck. They can't move out of their parents' house. They can't afford to save up money to get married or to start families of their own. So that creates pressure at the broad societal level. But for those who are most highly educated and have the best prospects, it also can create brain drain. Some of the best and brightest of this young generation may simply leave the region or leave their countries and go to more dynamic parts of the region where they can find jobs and fulfill their ambitions. Drawing on the work of Elhum Hagigat, a demographer with particular focus on the Middle East and North Africa, Kevin gives us a sense of the timeline regional governments have for taking advantage of their large youth populations. Hagigat gives the countries of the region until about 2040 to take advantage of this demographic gift by generating sufficient economic and political opportunities for their youth population. So this means the next 15 to 20 years will be really important for averting continued and possibly even heightened political instability in the Levant and elsewhere in the Middle East. For Israel, its neighbors' stability will remain an important concern. So thinking in particular about the countries neighboring Israel, the Palestinian territories and then Jordan stand out. The situation in Gaza is especially concerning. According to the Palestinian Central Bureau of Statistics, the total unemployment rate there reached 45.5% during the first quarter of 2020, with unemployment in the 15 to 29 demographic reaching 64.2%. So given that the median age of Gaza when disaggregated from that of the West Bank is the lowest in the region at 18, and if you took that alone, it would actually rank 214 out of 228 countries counted by the CIA World Factbook. 
This should only add to the sense of urgency as observers follow events there. And in Jordan, meanwhile, there's also both a very young population with a median age of 23.8 and a high youth unemployment rate. So that was 35% as of 2016. As Tamara points out, Israel's present challenge represents a reversal from its past concerns about powerful neighbors to the dangers emerging from the weakness of neighboring governments. I think since the beginning of the era of Arab-Israeli diplomacy, Israel has been primarily concerned about how to win acceptance from Arab states that themselves were fairly strong and stable. The situation Israel is facing today, I think, is quite different. There's a lot of instability on Israel's borders, and even key Israeli partners in the Arab world, like Egypt and Jordan, are facing major challenges in terms of economics and politics and social stability. So Israel can't take for granted that deals it makes with Arab governments today will necessarily hold for the long term, unless Israel can also find ways to help partner with those governments on behalf of regional stability. Good evening, I'm Rina Nine, and this is our Western edition. Multiple drones bombed Saudi Arabia's largest oil facilities today. And tonight, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo accused Iran of launching the attack and ruled out a claim of responsibility by Yemeni rebels. The second category of trends we looked at was changes in technology, especially military technology. Naturally, our ability to predict these changes is very limited, but we can already see some important trends underway. Drone technology and the availability of increasingly cheap and powerful computing power allow seemingly weak actors to use drones and coordinated swarms of drones to great effect. These allow for the targeting of military targets or major infrastructure installations, as was the case in the attack on Saudi Arabia's major oil field in Abqaiq in 2019, which temporarily took out a sizable chunk of global production. Cyber technology of various kinds opens the door to both offensive operations abroad and surveillance operations domestically. While stronger powers, such as Israel, will also take advantage of these trends and have far more resources to do so, these trends also open the possibility for an erosion in the qualitative advantage of stronger powers. They allow for the leveling of the playing field to the advantage of non-state actors. This could change the power structure in the Middle East in ways that could be very threatening for countries such as Israel, which currently enjoys a clear qualitative military edge over any combination of regional rivals. The third category of trends we look at is the interaction of global great powers in the Middle East. The United States has been in relative withdrawal from the region compared to the post 9-11 era during two presidencies that followed it. We want to bring our troops back home. It's been many, many years. It's been decades in many cases. We want to bring our troops back home. And I got elected on that. If you go back and look at our speeches, I would say we want to bring our troops back home from these endless wars. Obama and Trump were two very different presidents, of course but both of them saw a lesser role for the United States in the Middle East, certainly than their predecessor, George W. Bush. Other major powers, however, are much more present than they were in the past. 
Russia has returned to the region where the Soviet Union once was, with an important military presence, including in Syria, just north of Israel. And increasingly, China, the rising global power, already has a large and growing economic presence in the region, with very important economic and trade ties to countries such as Saudi Arabia and Iran. It also has the beginning of a security presence, even if China itself prefers to stay out of that realm, at least for the time being. The global US-China rivalry, which is growing dramatically in importance in Washington, DC, may force many countries in the world to make difficult choices. These include Israel. China presents major economic opportunities for countries in the region. But this rivalry, the US-China rivalry, may make partners of the United States have to make choices. Do they, for example, trade on technology, including sensitive technology with China? Or do they obey, quote unquote, directives from the United States to avoid such trade. A rivalry between the US and China may even entice the two powers back into the region against their own instincts and perhaps against their own interests. We've seen this in the past with great power rivalries. For example, the US-Soviet rivalry, where because of global considerations, they sought to expand their influence into regions where they were not necessarily inclined to go to begin with. Meanwhile, the increasingly partisan nature of the U.S.-Israel relationship in American politics threatens to undermine the future of Israel's most important partnership. I'm Shibli Talhami, the Anwar Sadat Professor for Peace and Development and Director of the University of Maryland's Critical Issues Poll and a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Shibley lays out some of the findings from the public opinion polling he has conducted on how Americans see the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the U.S. role in helping to resolve it. What has started happening more in the past 10 years is two things. One is no change in the overall number of people who want the U.S. to take on either side. In fact, the last poll that we did, which is just in August 2020, we had 62% of Americans say they want the U.S. to lean toward neither Israel nor the Palestinians. And that is in harmony with the historic number for that. Where the change has been taking place over the past decade is increasingly a majority of Republicans want the U.S. to take Israel's side directly. So, for example, in the August poll, in contrast with, say, 20 years ago, where a majority of Republicans wanted the U.S. to be leaning toward neither side, In August, 52% of Republicans wanted the U.S. to lean toward Israel directly. Only 1% of Republicans wanted the U.S. to lean toward the Palestinians. 45% wanted the U.S. to lean toward neither side. Much of the tensions now present result from how core political values in the U.S. shape Americans' views of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. On the Democratic side, I would say there are three important factors. And those have to be understood because the way they could be changed again, obviously. One of them is demographics. The position of Democrats on Israel-Palestine is absolutely not anti-Israel. It's more even-handed than anti-Israel. It is also not about Israel and Palestine. It is about fitting into a worldview, a worldview of values, equality, freedom, international law, justice, UN resolutions prior commitments, that kind of package of values that Democrats express has not only been central, particularly now that we're in kind of a values war in the U.S., but also it has been championed by demographic segments 
of the Democratic Party that have expanded over time. That is African-Americans, Hispanics, women, young people, Asian-Americans, the main constituents of the Democratic Party that have expanded over time. And with it, Palestine-Israel has become sort of a prototype of the advocacy on those values. What we find is that when you then ask the public, so let's assume there's no two states, which one do you favor more? That I favor the Jewishness of Israel more than its democracy. I support the continuation of Israel's Jewish majority in the government, even if it means that Palestinians will not have citizenship and full rights. Or I favor Israel's democracy more than its Jewishness and support a single democratic state in which Arabs and Jews are equal, even if that means Israel no longer would be politically a Jewish state. And we give them that choice, obviously, if the two-state solution is no longer viable in their minds. And we find that two-thirds, 65% of Americans say they would choose democracy over Jewishness. That's not where the American Congress is. 78% of Democrats say they would choose democracy over Jewishness, 62% of independents. And even among Republicans in the recent August poll, 51% of Republicans say they favor democracy over Jewishness. I think if you look at what happened, particularly during the Obama administrations, what we've had is mostly a right-wing Israeli government that has been at odds with the Democratic Party. In fact, in some ways, it has been an ally of the Republican Party, and sometimes very, very much so even in making its views clear during elections. That happened during the Obama administration when the Prime Minister of Israel intervened directly in American politics, spoke to both houses of Congress against the Iran nuclear deal, which the President of the United States championed. There was always tension there, and he was seen to be an ally of the Republican Party in domestic American politics. And that became even worse once Trump got elected, where the Israeli government was one of the few close allies that Trump has had. So clearly the right-wing Israeli government's relationship with the Republican Party in the U.S., association with positions that are at odds with the values of the Democratic Party, all of that explains why there has been that shift and why it's been elevated, because Israel has been in a way not just in part of a conflict with the Palestinians, but in some ways part of American politics and part of the dispute in American politics and part of the divide in American politics. Taken together, and with all the limitations of forecasting, these trends paint a potentially difficult outlook for the Middle East in the next two decades. For Israel specifically, they suggest some lessons and important policy adjustments that are relevant already today. The first is that complacency is dangerous. Israel stands in a position of strength today and perceives its position in the Middle East as far better than in many periods in the past. In 2020, Israel normalized relations with Arab countries, starting, of course, with the United Arab Emirates, and sees a shift in the global position in its favor. Nonetheless, this can change based on many different factors, including, not least, the U.S.-Israeli relationship. This relationship faces challenging currents, not just in the short term, with a new administration coming in in Washington, but in the longer term as well. As it looks to secure this relationship on a variety of fronts, Israel will face stark choices. Among the top issues that will affect the U.S.-Israeli relationship is the Palestinian question. 
Here, securing long-term bipartisan support in the United States for Israel will require a dramatic shift in Israel's current approach to the Palestinians, one that strives for real change in the circumstances in both the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, and that credibly shows a desire to resolve the conflict, even if a resolution of the conflict is a distant proposition. Going forward, even one or two decades down the line, Israel will still need the United States for material support and for support in the international arena, both to help Israel directly and in order to stave off harm coming in its direction. For that to continue, Israel must secure the alliance, and it must secure the domestic U.S. basis for this alliance on both sides of the political spectrum. Israel faces other stark choices as well, especially with regard to the role of China in the region and the need to balance Israel's interests in a productive relationship with China with its paramount consideration for the U.S.-Israeli relationship. This balancing act will not be Israel's alone. The countries of the Middle East may find themselves facing difficult choices in an era of renewed great power competition, even as the regional outlook in climate, governance, and security gets ever more complex. To learn more about this topic, please find our full report on the Brookings website, brookings.edu. Episodes like this are possible only with the collaboration of a very large team. I'd like to thank Fred Dews, the usual host of the Brookings Cafeteria podcast, Gaston Reberedo, audio engineer for the Brookings Podcast Network, who skillfully stitched the whole thing together, Ryan Jacobs, audio intern this semester, Anna Newby, our Communications Director and Managing Editor at Foreign Policy, and Camilo Ramirez, who manages the podcast creation team in the Office of Communications. My special thanks go to all the scholars who helped with the research involved, including the experts you heard here today, Samantha Gross, Tamara Kaufman-Wittis, Shidley Telhani, and of course to Kevin Huggard, the co-author of the report mentioned in this podcast and a partner in this effort. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network, which also produces Dollar and Cents, The Current, and our events podcasts. You can listen to the Brookings Cafeteria in all the usual places. I'm Nathan Sachs.